and welcome to the Medical Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Katie Grant, and today I'll be bringing you something new. Medical Protection will be proudly hosting the Caribbean Medical Conference Spotlight on Risk on Sunday, May the 21st. This is an online conference going for about two hours. And did I mention that it's free? It is for both members and non-members, so do come along and join us. And as with any medical protection conference, you can expect to hear from a number of world leaders on a variety of topics. But we don't always get the chance to learn about the speakers in advance and how they came to be where they are today. So in today's podcast, I'll be doing just that and talking with Gareth Locke, founder of The Human Diver. Gareth has training in human factors science and learning from unintended outcomes. And he founded an organization training in human factors globally. He's published a book, he's contributed to a number of articles, and I'm sure there's loads I've missed, Gareth. So we're gonna come back to your incredible story shortly. So happy to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Brilliant, thanks so much, Katie, for the invites. And and really looking forward to the conference in May too. We are too. And I just have to say um, that I have demonstrated this morning a number of human errors within the process of trying to record this podcast. So I think this topic is something that absolutely is is bang on the money for all of our members, uh, whatever we do, whatever specialty we work in. Uh, so, Gareth, I want to hear a little bit about you. I, I've mentioned that you have founded this organisation looking at human factors in the diving community. But how did you end up uh, working in this quite niche area? So I spent 25 years in the Royal Air Force. I was a navigator on Hercules transport aircraft and then went to go off and do a number of different studies, one of which uh, involved looking at human factors in a little bit more detail. Military aviation's got crew resource management, non-technical skills as a core uh, basis for our operations. Um, And then I left the Air Force in 2015, having done flight trials and research development and procurement, so broad systems knowledge, and then set up my own training company. I started in the oil and gas business, started in healthcare, um, and then actually my passion was about trying to educate the diving community about what makes aviation safe and trying to bring that in there. Um, So came together, put together um, online face-to-face training, um, say publish a book, put a documentary together, which was actually motivated by a, a documentary one of you or you, many of your listeners may know about just a routine operation by Martin Brawley. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's been a huge influence to me. And since then, more than 500 people face-to-face, more than a couple of thousand people online, and, and the book sold, I don't know, about four and a half, five thousand copies globally. And it's all about trying to create change by understanding human error and the fact that it's normal. Yes, I think that's that's something that I think, um, particularly as doctors, we sometimes find really hard to grasp that actually, you know, there's there's always going to be a part of you that you can't sort of train out of making a mistake. But obviously, um, we, we've we're really familiar. And I was an anaesthetist, so yeah, Martin Bromley is you know very well respected. That story, you know, of his wife still you know has sent shockwaves through the mm-hmm. you know the community as, as you can understand it would how um yeah and we're familiar with the medical and aviation analogy but the diving one is something new which is why we've asked you to speak yeah. at our conference because it's it's an area that i know very little about what really um can you give us uh you know an idea of how you became a diver first of all what what drew you into that because you're already a, a pilot right and you were well, i was a navigator so i told the pilot where to go so I was oh, a, so even more important than the flying yeah, so directional <laughs> consultant yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then what, what got you into another? I mean, are you an adrenaline junkie? I'm getting the same oh, thing. So <laughs> what's interesting is that if you're an adrenaline junkie, you probably don't yeah. want to be in, in the diving space. It's okay. like a wingsuit flyers are about adrenaline. It's about yeah. control. So mm-hmm. I, interesting, my, my diving story started in 99 um, and I did my basic open water diving class when I was on holiday in Greece. And I got introduced to the, the failures within the system straight away. So the final dive of my open water class was supposed to be a maximum of 18 meters. Hmm. And we went up 24 meters because there was nothing to see at 18. And I went to fill my logbook in and write 24 meters. And the instructor said, no, no, you can't do that because we're hmm. only allowed to 18 meters. And I'm like, well, OK. Um, and so five years later, I hadn't dived and I went on a work trip to San Diego and I went diving and I had a couple of near misses on that. And I got back to the UK. And I was like, well, how do I report this near miss? Yeah. I realized that actually there isn't really anything that's credible. So that was my sort of first peak. And I started digging into this and realizing that actually in the diving industry, really immature. We're, we're about where aviation was 50 years ago. And we often blame the individual. So to your point about uh, the doctor's realize there's things that we can't control yeah. actually human factors is about designing systems to make it easier to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing yeah. so actually you know even if you're ultimately professional i could create a, a work environment which would force you to make the wrong mistakes because yeah. of time pressures or incorrectly placed equipment or incorrectly labeled equipment or lack of communication and those things all apply to the diving space as well. Um, how you communicate as a pre-dive brief, how you communicate underwater, how you make decisions, how we manage, I'm going to say risk, we're actually we're managing uncertainties, which is yeah. done through heuristics and mental shortcuts, how we run an effective debrief to learn after the event. And none of those things are really taught. And so these are system factors that are influencing behaviors at the sharp end. And that's where I'm looking at this, not just at the cognitive level or the the machine interface level, but it's also supervisory organization, cultural learning, cultural behaviors. So you've taken your aviation knowledge, then you've noticed there's this big gap in the safety culture of diving, which again, is a sur- I've never dived, but it's a surprise to me that uh, there perhaps wouldn't be a structure uh, or, you know, like a reporting system. So when you say a near miss, can you give us an idea of what that might mean as a diver, as a, we know what a medical near miss is? Or yeah, so, I mean, and actually it's one of the problems is there is no classification of an incident. Oh, okay. uh, so you end up with this really generic piece that says where there was an increase in risk and it was captured. Now, mm-hmm. part of the problem, so as, as an example, might be somebody runs out of gas, yeah. uh, or breathing gas at depth. Now, the reporting systems that are in place often classify to the the, the most severe. So a diver could suffer from decompression sickness, um, which might be caused by a rapid ascent, which might be caused by running out of gas, which might be caused by poor planning or a separation. And so there's no mitigations for when it's going on. It's classified as a decompression sickness event, but actually the learning happens way back in time. Uh, And so we just say to people, be, be more careful, pay more attention, don't get bent, you know, don't yeah. run out of gas. It's yeah. like, yeah, okay, th- those are fairly obvious things. But unless we understand the decision-making processes and the context yeah. surrounding it, it becomes very difficult to, uh, to, to put preventative measures in place. 
And the way you've just described that instant obviously sounds very much like the Swiss cheese model we're, we're very familiar with as medics. Yeah. And that it's not; ju- it's very rarely one person, one thing. It's actually a series of events where there are opportunities at each point to make a difference, to yeah. prevent the, the bad thing from happening. But when they all line up, that's when. Okay, so I'm you're you're persuading me. There's there's a lot to transfer over. So talking about the conference, just to give our listeners a little bit of a teaser about what you might be discussing, we have asked you to look at gap between work as imagined and work done so tell me about that what do you mean by that so um there there is always a gap between what people think should happen and what actually happens so as as a simple example i'm um you know take a diving example uh, and and people can take that into into your medical world Um, i'm thinking about putting a training program together so i'm thinking about i've got some imagination now the brilliant thing about our imagination is we can work in multiple dimensions time is not an issue we often think about great resources we can have and then we start to codify it we write it down so now we have work as prescribed now that document set is always going to be different to what i imagined before mm-hmm. because we can't write everything down and if we did nobody would read it all and often when we write things down we work on optimal conditions rather than realistic conditions because that's how a, an organization funds something or oh, we need these resources And then what would happen is if I gave you, as one of my diving instructors, that document set. Now, in in one world, I'm a very punishment, punitive-based person, and you know that. You know that everything has to be done to standard. So I give you that document set and say, Katie, here's a new training program. I'd like you to go and teach it. And you pick it up and go, oh, my God, Gareth has no idea how I actually teach yeah. or the context in which we're doing. Um, and I'll say, okay, I'll come back in a couple of months time, see how you're getting on. So I leave you to it. I don't do any checking and I come back and I say to you, how are you getting on? And he goes, brilliant. I'm teaching loads. It, it's all spot on because you know, if you're not teaching to standards, you're going to get punished. Um, and so there's this gap between what you're actually doing and what's written down. Now, take this to a a parallel universe. I'm a really nice, engaging, inclusive individual. And I'm thinking about this program. And as I'm documenting it, I say to you, Katie, can you come over here? Can you tell me how you would teach this? What are the pitfalls? What are the problems? And we co-produce that document set. And I say, off you go. And I'll check in every couple of weeks. Just tell me where things are wrong and we'll put things in place. And so if I come back in three months time and say, how are you getting on? You'll go, this is how I actually do that task. And the gap between work is imagined and work is done provides a risk or leads to a risk for organizations. Because if you don't have psychological safety and you don't have a just culture in place, you will never find out what work has done really is. And those people at the sharp end are always completing the design. That that document set is always incomplete. It can never cover everything. And you have the expertise to close that gap. And as organizations, as leaders, you need to go and find out what work has done really happens. Because until something goes wrong, you do not know what risk your organizations are facing. Mm -hmm. And when something goes wrong, the regulator will look at your standards, your rules and say, this is your work as prescribed. Why weren't people following it? The yes. fact that people can't follow it, 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 it you know, is by the by. Yeah, so yeah. you have to work out that. So that's really what my presentation is going to be about, is understanding the gap between work is imagined, work is done, and what we can do to close that gap in practical terms. I mean, that's, uh, it's 
hitting so many nails on the head. I mean, lots of the cases we hear uh, involve systems failing. So I know at the beginning you said about um, talking about a system and that actually it's about designing a system that can't or almost will minimise the risk of you failing. Mm -hmm. And I think that will resonate a lot with our doctors and dentists and other healthcare professionals throughout the world. The other thing is, as I'm thinking about checklists, you know, as an anaesthetist, we we love a checklist. Let's yeah. be honest, we love checks. We love checking our machines, our equipment. So I guess there's, you know, there's a few more parallels perhaps with the diving world. There's partial pressures and physics involved, yes, yeah. which I have to say was my not my favourite part. But again, um, you know, that there's a reason why we do it. But again, we will see you go to a new trust and they might say, oh, we never fill in that checklist. Or we only do that once a week. I know it says daily. So again, yeah. you're thinking, well, the trust is saying, do it daily why are you not doing it? oh well it's too much hassle or actually by the time we've undone it all and put it all back together we don't have time or and and i think a big uh issue you've potentially highlighted is that perhaps as leaders organizations don't go to those people who are doing the jobs so that gap is automatically there right so this to me is is a, is a slightly mind-blowing moment that rather than I just pick up on the checklist yeah, please do actually so, you know, the World Health Organization Safety Surgical Checklist yep. is a fantastic tool, uh, but it's a tool that sits inside a context. Yeah. And for organizations, they'll sit there and go, right, what's the compliance of that checklist? Yeah. Tick, 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 it's all done. So you count them up at the end of the day, you count them up at the end of the yeah. week, and you punish people for non-compliance. So what happens is you go, tick, 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 there we go, it's done. Yes. Did you actually execute the item that was in the checklist? Yes. No. Uh, and, and I can see you laughing about it because this yeah. is what happens. This is about system design. What is it you reward and what do you punish? Mm -hmm. Because if you reward certain behaviors and you punish yeah. others, we will go to we will go towards the stuff we're rewarded and we will move away from the stuff we get punished for. Um, and that yeah. gives the leadership a false indication. Yeah, all of our checklists are being done yeah. and therefore we're safe. Hmm. But, that, yeah. you know, but they're not. I think that, yeah. Uh, in a way, people are probably lucky this isn't a vodcast and you can't see me rolling my eyes regularly because this is very much hitting home, even though it was some years ago. I think the sense, because when you say checklist, I think you do get the eye rolling, particularly, um, you know, the, the 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 WHO safety check, you know, we did it and, and it took some time. It took time even to go around and introduce yourself. There were people in the team who'd be like, I'm not going to say what my name and job role is. And you'd yeah. be like, just tell us who you are. We all know who you are. Just like play the game. And I think there is always that resistance, particularly in the medical community, is like, oh, another checklist yeah. or, or management telling us what to do. So the fact that, um, again, it, just completing a form is a bit like a consent form. Completing a form doesn't mean you've done the process of consent properly. Yes. It doesn't mean that you've done the check just because you've you've ticked the boxes. And I think that's I think there is a cynicism perhaps in some medical fraternities that um, having a checklist is more of a, a tokenistic thing. So I'm what I'm getting from you is that this buy-in and the involvement has to be, it's not like a leaders and managers versus the workers, or, you know, it has to be yeah. a collaborative thing. And I think that's hopefully what you've been able to create in your diving community. So can I just finish by asking you a question? Um, have you encountered resistance within the diving community if you're trying to sort of um, make things a bit more ship-shape? forgive the pun, um, yeah. but, or safer? Have, have you had resistance where perhaps people think, look, we've been doing this fine, you know? Spot on. Oh, it, okay. this bit, so we are hugely influenced by outcome bias. Things haven't gone wrong, therefore we must be doing things right. Oh, yeah. Um, or we haven't got any evidence that these factors are present. 
um, and therefore they're not relevant. It's like yeah. your incident reporting systems don't even ask for this. The investigations that happen are done by law enforcement or attorneys yeah. who are not interested about learning. They're looking and, and the same the same evidence that would u- be used for learning would also be used for non-compliance. So there's a great quote from Sidney Decker that talks about you can either learn or blame, you can't do both. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really the outcomes we're talking about. And it, because it's such a, a novel topic, people go, but it's just common sense. Yeah. They go, but it's not. And, and everybody who comes onto my training, 500 plus people, with the exception of one person, everybody got it. And that person who didn't get it is because they couldn't reflect. And they didn't like having a mirror held up in front of them and said, this is what your performance is like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I, I deal with a self-selecting audience. Yeah. So in, in that sense, it's, it's beneficial. But in the majority of occasions, people go, we don't need to do that. Or they sit there and go, it would cost our organization too much yes. to scale this. They yeah. go, well, start now with the small bits and we can start by changing the language and that yeah. doesn't cost you anything. But well, look- there are so many parallels, Gareth. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that, that sense that people don't want to ask a question because they don't want to hear the answer, that kind of thing. Have you ever asked about X, Y, Z? You know, we're, we're thinking about fatigue yesterday. I was at, you know, uh, a house. Houses of Parliament talking about fatigue in doctors. And there's places where they don't even want to think about whether doctors or nurses are tired, because actually, if they are tired, what does that mean for rotors? What does that mean for safety? What does that mean uh, for liability within the organisation? So it's almost like you don't want to ask questions for fear of opening that box. Um, but of course, that is the whole point, isn't it? That someone has to ask those questions because you don't want to wait till somebody you know, nice. has an incident and dies. Yeah. And I'm interested why you're one out of 500. I wonder if this person, you know, will they reflect or will they will they actually, uh, I don't know, will it take a near miss or something for them to, to think about it? And can I ask, do you learn from, do you, do you learn from, uh, do you look at near misses as well? Is that yes. part of your... Yeah, yeah. so running, um, invest, I, I don't like the term investigation, but I don't know another yeah. word, learning review, learning from an intended can- yeah. outcome. So I, I run a, a programme which is all about understanding context and influential factors, not about causality. Um, It's too easy to pigeonhole things. And I know that many organizations use like taxonomic basis for incidents and they go ding, 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 ding. Now the problem is you either shoehorn something in that doesn't fit, you put it into other, and then there are loads of others that are out there. Or you end up with loads of extra nanocodes and then people don't know what it is. Yeah. People want numbers, data. That's what management, the research shows management want reports and data. Operators, practitioners want stories. And mm-hmm. stories take time to tell. They take time to, time to unearth, to, to get out. Yeah. Because as you have a dialogue, somebody will say something, oh, how did that make sense for you to do that? And then you go down a little rabbit hole. And the learning products that are created need to be for the target audience. So in your yeah. domain, it might be for the CEOs, CEOs yeah. or the CEOs, is actually, this is what we need to, to learn from this event. But yeah. from the front end practitioner, they have a very different learning bit. And normally yeah. what happens, you get a 50 page report and go, boom, there you go. Somebody picks it up and goes, ah, too much, can't read that. Yeah. Um, and so the learning's lost. I'm, I'm fascinated by the idea of stories versus data. Um, 
because you know I, we have this psychological you know we have a psychological analysis we had something done here and someone said oh you're very you're very um data driven i was like sorry and they're like you you use too much data when you're talking i'm like i think you've got me confused but actually um that sense that some of us respond to stories and again like with an anesthetic mistake it would go through the hospital like sequentially you would it would get slightly mutated but yeah. everyone would be you know someone had an anaphylaxis death so literally gave the drug the patient just you know airway closed up couldn't get a tube in and then from probably years after that anyone who'd heard about that story was really on hyper alert for an anaphylaxis every time you gave a drug and somebody went a bit wheezy or got a rash everyone would jump to that horrifying conclusion and it's almost that sense you learn like you said you learn from the story you learn from that sense of being in the place yes gareth so so that makes a really interesting mm. one of the biases we have the confirmation bias so now we jump to it's a it's a you know a, an antibiotic effect yes that's what it is and, and what we end up channeling down yes. that uh, you're, you're ignoring all the other evidence because you, you've you've got your mind set on the worst case scenario because it happened to your your best friend last yeah. week. Yeah, I, I think this is fascinating, and I'm 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 so I'm going to be at the conference anyway. So, but if oh, I right. wasn't, yeah, if I wasn't, I would I would log in just to hear Gareth's story. So I think we better wind things up because I actually I don't want Gareth to tell us all the great stuff because we need to say something for the conference. Brilliant. So we've we've reached the end of today's podcast. So if you do want to hear more from Gareth, and why wouldn't you? There's going to be diving. There's going be drama um come along it's on may the 21st and it's 1 p.m to about 3 15 p.m trinidad time like i said it's free for everybody so please go online to our website and register um also there'll be a link in the description below if you want to click and register there and i just want to say thanks again to our guest gareth Locke, and i cannot wait to see you in may gareth thank you so much for your time brilliant thank you very much kelly love to be here and as you can tell i love talking about this stuff and really looking forward to the conference great we'll see you in may